Welcome to Awesome Movie Year, the podcast where we take a look back at an awesome year for movies, which is every year. My name is Josh Bell, film critic and writer, and I'm here with my co-host. I'm Jason Harris, filmmaker, comedian, and I see movies and talk about them here on the podcast. <laughs> I don't know. Whatever. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, yeah. it was, uh, you, you got to do something. <laughs> yeah. you, you, you tried. You tried. It was. Uh, I, I don't even think I committed to that. No, moment. you didn't do the voice. Really. Josh, give me, a, give me a cue again. I'm here with my partner, uh, you know, my co-host. <laughs> I'm here with my co-host. I'm Jason Harris, filmmaker, comedian, and normally I put in a catchphrase from a film here, but was there even a famous one on this one? (laughs) Nobody remembers any lines from this film. So we are here at the premiere of our ninth season. It's kind of amazing. They said it wouldn't last, and uh, they should have been right. And uh, where are they? (laughs) Who is this they we speak of? So when we originally discussed launching this podcast, your idea, Jason, was that you wanted to do a whole podcast devoted to just this one year that we're about to talk about. Yeah, and some other dumb dumb podcast already took that idea yeah there's a couple actually right 1999 is another reformational transitional monumental revolutionary year in film although i think uh when we look back we'll see that uh everything that was supposed to happen afterwards did not happen right especially right now but um i had read this book and i'll reference it multiple times this season uh best movie year ever uh by brian rafferty and uh, it's great. And it breaks down all these like important movies of 1999, including the one we're talking about today. So normally we launch our uh, season with the box office champion of the year. And as we've done at least one other time in past seasons for this year, we are going to not look at the number one movie at the box office, which was Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace. We've talked about Star Wars extensively in our 1977 season. And if you're interested in our thoughts on the Star Wars franchise as a whole, check out our Star Wars episode. And more importantly, The Phantom Menace is a pile of garbage and I didn't want to rewatch it. That's fair. Although I think there's a lot of interesting stuff to discuss related specifically to that. But we wanted to look at something that we haven't talked about before. And that is the number two movie at the box office in 1999, which is M. Night Shyamalan's the sixth sense. Right. And this was, I don't want to say the launching pad because this was like the rocket launcher for Shyamalan and not, this wasn't his first feature, but this is the one that elevated him to the stratosphere of filmmaking. And, um, you know, we've seen ups and downs right now. I'd say he's on an upswing again. And, uh, and yeah, I mean, this, this movie still is part of, uh, the pop cultural lexicon to this day, Josh. So we have to talk about it. Yeah, absolutely. And it's also amazing that this is the movie that was number two. You know, you look at the box office, even just a few years after this, and almost every movie in the top 10 is going to be something like a Star Wars or, uh, you know, a franchise of some kind. But this original film that was from an unknown filmmaker, you know, the most you can say for a known quantity of this film is that it starred Bruce Willis. And it became, you know, other than Star Wars, the biggest hit of the whole year. Yes. But Josh, as you know, we have a special guest coming up later, Mr. Dick Walsh, who uh, I met at Cordillera Film Festival and really appreciated his depth of knowledge on so many different subjects. So I really wanted to have him on. He's the former chairman of AMC Films, the theater chain, you know, and um, we talked a lot about the things that really should have made this not number two. The fact that it was released in August, the dumping ground, right? You mentioned Bruce Willis, but this wasn't like a Bruce Willis movie and everything, you know, the whole aspect of the secret not getting out of this thing. So this defied the odds in many ways. It did. Yes, even at the time. But I think especially now, even a movie like that, and there's movies still that come out that are sudden surprise hits. But to get to that point at the box office in a theater, in theaters, I think is just something that doesn't really happen anymore. This movie, again, obviously was a massive, amazing hit. It was a a $40 million movie, so not a tiny, tiny budget, but, you know, by the standards of blockbusters, a small budget film and grossed $672.8 million worldwide, which is just astonishing and was hugely acclaimed, too. It was nominated for six Oscars, including Best Picture, Best Director for M. Night Shyamalan, Best Supporting Actor for Haley Joel Osment, Best Supporting Actress for Tony Collette, Best Original Screenplay, and Best Editing, although it did not win any of those. Talk about the 
hate on Bruce Willis there, man. Everyone, everyone got nods except Bruce Willis on that one. Yeah. I mean, I think in a weird way, maybe Willis being famous and being the known quantity here worked against him because people see this movie and they're like, oh yeah, well, Bruce Willis, he's good, of course. But Haley Joel Osment is this revelation. And even Tony Collette was not that well known at this point. So yeah, um, I mean, I think Haley Joel really uh, was the the breakout of this thing. Tony Collette, you know, would has before and after just solid all the way through on everything. Right. But like see a kid actor pull this off is pretty impressive. It is amazing. That performance still just just blew me away. Obviously, it was nominated for tons of other awards, including from uh, major award standpoints. It was nominated for four BAFTAs and two Golden Globes, it didn't win very many of the awards it was nominated for. And I think maybe this is something that still happens where you have this genre movie that's a popular sensation and awards uh, shows will give it the nominations. But when it comes down to the winners, they go with the more sort of traditional prestige choices. But again, like, should it have won? Maybe screenplay, I think, right? But- yeah, I, that's the one that I would think that it would have ended up with. And I don't, uh, I should have looked up what did win. I'm sure it was something good. But um, as you say, this is a great year for movies, an awesome year for movies. Screenplay uh, was American Beauty written directly for the screen. Okay, well, maybe I'll take that back. We'll see. <laughs> we may be talking about that in a later episode. Well, of course we will. It won Best Picture and we cover Best Picture every year. I was trying to be a little like mysterious. You, you were trying to keep the ending. <laughs> you know, there, there might the be twist. a twist, yeah. right? But you just ruined it. You just ruined it for everyone. So this movie was was very popular with both audiences and critics. Uh, it got an A minus from CinemaScore, the audience polling service, which is a, a, a solid result. It got two thumbs up from Ebert and uh, guest critic Wesley Morris. This was during a period after Gene Siskel had died. So we'll have a lot of Ebert guest critics to mention yeah. this season, I think. It's kind of like Jeopardy right now as we speak, although they did name a host. Kind yeah, of, so yeah. kind of not like Jeopardy anymore. But... It's like Jeopardy three weeks ago. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> So uh, Wesley Morris, who is a uh, well-respected at the time, was at the San Francisco uh, Chronicle or Examiner, I think, was on with Ebert, and they both really liked this film. And uh, Ebert, in his written review, said, The Sixth Sense isn't a thriller in the modern sense, but more of a ghost story of the sort that flourished years ago, when ordinary people glimpsed hidden dimensions. It has long been believed that children are better than adults at seeing ghosts. The barriers of skepticism and disbelief are not yet in place. In this film, a small boy solemnly tells his psychologist, I see dead people. They want me to do things for them. He seems to be correct. I have to admit, this is later in the review, he says, I have to admit I was blindsided by the ending. The solution to many of the film's puzzlements is right there in plain view. And the movie hasn't cheated, but the very boldness of the storytelling carried me right past the crucial hints and right through to the end of the film, where everything takes on an intriguing new dimension. The Sixth Sense has a kind of calm, sneaky self-confidence that allows it to take us down a strange path intriguingly. And we will, obviously, if you haven't seen it, spoiler alert, we're going to ruin the ending 22 years later. I mean, I feel like this is one of those movies that even if you haven't seen it, you know what the twist is because it's so famous. But um, yeah, and and, and like I said, Dick Walsh and I talk about that. How did the secret stay in? I think it's that idea of like people were like, oh, you got to see it and we don't want to ruin it for you. But uh, a few things to that point there, Josh. The screenplay, I remember it was like 18 drafts or something. He kept rewriting and rewriting and rewriting. And I don't know which draft got that twist ending in it but i don't think it was in the original draft you know um and then lastly the term ordinary people comes up a lot because Shyamalan was such a fan of that film and kind of was very influenced by ordinary people i haven't seen that film actually best picture winner 1980 get ready for that all right season of 1980 it was a good movie probably should have lost raging bull okay go on (laughs) (laughs) yeah well i think it was interesting because of course reading these reviews I mean, the twist became a huge sensation, obviously, at the time. It's not just now. Once this movie was released, everyone was focused on that. But these critics who are seeing it just before it was released, it's not that they don't mention the twist, but it's not like this big thing looming over their potential viewing of the movie. Well, I think, and I wonder what you guys think, upon rewatching it, because now having known it and seen it, like, we're almost looking for holes, right? And I'm like, man, this holds up really, really well, like, it really has a, a, you know, airtight script here. And even knowing the ending, like you can enjoy that build to get there because of 
all the steps that he takes uh, logically and to progress and elevate the story throughout. Yeah, absolutely. I think in a way, I maybe enjoyed it more knowing the twist because I wasn't just waiting for like, what will the twist be? And I could see, like you said, those building blocks and how he just constructs it so well to build up to that. I saw this study recently that said people in, they say they don't like spoilers, but they actually do. Like if you spoil it for them, then they can kind of just let the story build knowing where it's going to go as opposed to like being focused on like, what is it going to be? I don't agree with that, but I could see you uh, in your critical way of thinking, enjoying that. Well, yeah, I mean, I think it's not just, it's not that like wanting to know what happens. I think it's the specific. Well, you're focusing on other elements at this point. Right, but, I, but I, think, I think also it's the specific idea that you know there's a big twist. Not that you know what, you know. And so if I go into this movie not knowing anything and then there's a big twist, I think then yeah, I can appreciate great. it. But if you know that there is a twist, but you don't know what it is and you're just waiting for like, what will the twist be? I think that can be distracting. I get that, but I don't think you have to go and watch it that way. I think you could just go and be like, all right, at some point there's a twist and let's take the ride. Dave. I was just going to say, I think that this conversation will come up a lot in the legacy section later. Yeah. Mm. So Talk uh, about a twist. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Lisa Schwartzbaum in Entertainment Weekly also was a big fan of this. She said, cinema literates know when to expect the unexpected in a thriller. Without giving the slightest bit away, then, let me say that the coolest thing about The Sixth Sense is how this twisty ghost story about a child who sees dead people all around him circumvents all such instincts. It's a psychological thriller that actually thrills. While the story unspools and sometimes flags, the clues and recurring images amount to little. Running the scenes over in your head afterward, though, and you will, forward and back, uncovers a construction that rewards wide awake attention. So I think she's speaking to what we're just saying is that like, if you're kind of anticipating it or whatever, or not knowing what's going to happen, you might not see, you know, not appreciate everything that he's doing. But once you know, you realize how well constructed it is. Yeah. And uh, I, I guess we'll can talk about the ending in the next segment. But I definitely was like, looking and i'm not saying i found like a hole here or there because i do think it's tightly constructed but there are certain conveniences uh that are set up in this yes and speaking of which uh not every critic liked it although almost all did but i wanted to get a dissenting voice so uh charles taylor in salon did not like this at all he said for all the attention m night Shyamalan pays to the look and mood of the movie he's a klutz when it comes to plotting and characterization and because his clumsiness keeps us outside Cole, he never achieves the empathy the character deserves. So the movie becomes the vaguely unpleasant task of watching a child suffering from arm's length. Shyamalan is a pedant. He appears to think he's creating an eerie atmosphere layer by layer with the movie's unrelievedly dingy look and the funereal pacing of each scene. But the tempo only makes you wonder where the movie's connective tissue has gone. So I disagree completely with everything there, but I just wanted to throw that out there. I disagree as well. I'm not sure. I mean, Malcolm Crow is pretty much our main character from scene one. Yeah, but Cole is, uh, you know, the Haley Joel Osment character is an essential character. Right. But yes, he's an essential character, but we get to know him through his relationship with Crow. And Crow is a child psychologist, a doctor, right? So he has to keep him at an arm's length. On top of that, this kid obviously is going through major conflicts that no one believes. So like what, you know, he's dealing with his own inner turmoil. So that's the turmoil that we have to deal with. It's not like uh, we should be picking flowers with him in a happy-go-lucky little, uh, you know, romp through the, the field here. Yeah, I, I think so. And, and I think what he says about Shyamalan being sort of clumsy uh, and having difficulty with, especially like with character development, I think is is true a lot in his later movies. But I don't feel that way here at all. I think, as we keep saying, this plot is really well constructed. And I did think that there was a lot of good character development. I felt like I understood Malcolm Crow. I felt like I understood Cole, even Cole's mother, that it's not just about spookiness and twists, that there are real conflicts between the characters. There's conflicts and there's there's real emotion to the characters. 
And one thing he specifically mentions is wondering where the connective tissue has gone. And I think that's one of the things where if you watch this movie without being aware of what's going on, there's certain transitions where you might be like, wait, what happened? Or how did we get from here to there? Or is there part of this scene missing? But all of that is part of the way that Shyamalan is kind of misdirecting you and the way that he's building up to what the twist is. And once you know what the twist is, you realize that, well, okay, if he showed us this or that, it would have revealed too much at the time. Do you have an example of that? No, uh, not specifically. But no, I Perfect. mean, I think, well, I, okay, I do actually. I mean, just just a basic example is like Crow is, is always trying to open that door in his house that we uh, later see is, is blocked by like a bookcase or something like that. Right. So we see him doing that. And then it kind of cuts to him sitting in the basement, which is what that door goes to. And, you know, we can't see him open the door because no. he obviously doesn't. Um, but you might wonder after a couple of times, like, okay, why is he like unable to open this? They're drawing attention to that and yet not following up on it. And then he's just in another room. And that's one of those things where later on you realize why that is. Yeah. And, and when I was talking about earlier, like those conveniences that like you feel like, okay, that could be considered a, a plot hole or something. That's, that's basically the main one I was referring to also. Wouldn't another example of that be how almost every scene seems to start like already into the scene, like people aren't arriving to meet with him or anything. Like I that. like that personally. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, even the way that they first meet where like, Crow is outside on the bench and Cole like leaves the house and he has to like track him down and cut him off. I yeah. thought I really like that kind of, you know, we're coming in in the middle of things. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, and that's a, a dramatic device anyway, but of course it plays into the, the plot twist. You don't wonder like, well, why doesn't Crow ever talk to Cole's mom? Why isn't there a scene of her asking like, what's wrong with my child? Or right. Something? And we do see them multiple times in the same scene so it's kind of interesting the way that's built right and it's all for a very good reason so i think he's totally off here but i did want to yeah show charles that. taylor whatever dude <laughs> so i mean i think it's obvious we all did see this when it was first out when it was a thing jason did you see this in the theater i did see this in the theater and i'm glad i did the ending was not spoiled for me i remember the one year afterwards i was talking about it at college and Carl Tortola did not tell me that he hadn't seen it. So I spoiled the ending for him. But I feel like, Carl, that's on you. Because one, you could have stopped me from talking at any point in time. And two, you had a full year to see this thing. And uh, as Dick Walsh mentions, it almost plays for a full year in the theater. Wow. Yeah, because I was, I was about to say, like, even, even if that's the case, yeah. After a year, I think you're no longer able to get mad at people for spoiling something. Yeah, like Carl. That. That's a long time. <laughs> Too bad we didn't have Carl on this episode as a guest. Um, yeah, I also saw it in the theater, although I remember, and this is sort of like the experience that I was talking about, that I saw it, I don't remember, it wasn't a year, but it was a little while between when it was released and when I got around and was able to go. So I was very aware of the idea that there was a twist, but I didn't know what it was. And so I felt like I spent... It, you know, like half my brain, the entire time that I was watching this movie was focused on like, what's the twist? Is that the twist? Is that the twist? And I remember when you get to, I mean, and it's like the almost exact midpoint of the movie when Cole says, I see dead people. And I remember thinking, oh, there's the twist. And, and then like being like, well, no, that probably doesn't qualify as a twist. And it's only halfway through the movie and just like distracted by all these things. And, you know, I think it, I love the movie, but I think maybe... It, it made it a little difficult for me to love it as much as I would have. But you knew there was a twist and still couldn't figure it out. So I think that speaks to the execution of it. Right. Well, and, and again, it's no it's no knock on the movie. I'm just sort of describing what my experience was at the time. So, Dave, did you see this in the theater? Yeah, definitely. Probably opening night. And I knew there was a twist. I mean, everyone was talking about it immediately, but I had no clue what to expect. Yeah. And did you like it? Yeah, I loved it. I really liked it upon first viewing, and, you know, we'll get to our thoughts upon this viewing, too. And I, yeah, I do think I saw it in theater, but even if I didn't and was on video, like, nothing was ruined for me by that point in time. Right. Yeah, I definitely, like I said, even though I was well aware of the twist and it was a little while, I don't know how long, I still had avoided finding out what the twist was. And I think that's another thing is that it wasn't that hard. To avoid finding out. Whereas now, if there's something like that, you kind of have to work at it. Impossible. Yeah. 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 It's still possible, but it's a lot harder. 
So uh, anything else you want to mention on the background here, Jason? Sure. I mean, you mentioned a lot of, uh, you know, the, the financial heights it reached. Um, it was number one for five weeks. And again, we said it was dropped in the middle of August, like, you know, Death Valley for movies. It was the only other movie besides Titanic to do over $20 million for five weekends. And I found these two facts interesting, Josh. Uh, first of all, Shyamalan, how much did he sell the script for? $3 million, dude. That's a that's a pretty high figure even now. Yeah, considering like he had made uh, not such big hits before. No, I know not he, at all. It's kind of a script doctor did like Stuart Little and stuff like that. The other thing was you mentioned Lisa Schwartzbaum. The Entertainment Weekly Summer Movie Preview of 1999 had 134 movies they previewed, and this was not even in there. <laughs> so tells you what a surprise hit this was. Yeah, nice. All right, well, uh, we'll come back then in a moment and talk about our general thoughts on The Sixth Sense. And spoil the ending. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year in this season premiere of our season on the films of 1999. We are talking about box office champion or near box office champion, The Sixth Sense. And as Jason indicated just before our little break, we are going to spoil the ending. I, I can't imagine that anyone listening to this is unaware of what the ending to The Sixth I Sense mean, is. I mean, it's so, uh, you know, look, if you haven't seen it, it's on Peacock right now. And I'm sure you could rent it on Amazon Prime or something. So, you know, take a nice, it's only an hour and what, 40 minutes or something like an hour and 30 minutes. So take a little break, watch the movie, come back and uh, you won't have it spoiled right now. But I, I mean, I think as I was saying, like, even people who haven't seen the movie are probably well aware of what that what it is. And if, although I will say that even if you are and you think, you know, like, oh, I know what the twist is. Why would I bother? Like, you should see it. It's a great movie. Yeah, the build is still there. So I wanted to say I looked up the uh, best actor nominees and I, I, it's almost in an impenetrable lair of like awesome actors. But I think Bruce Willis, we got to give him credit here for doing something that we hadn't seen him really do. And um, really just, you know, he sets the mood. And if he's not playing that mood off of Haley Joel Osment, then I don't know how effective, you know, those other, those, they would still be effective performances, but he's really grounding this movie. So I wanted to give him credit because uh, we've trashed him many times in, <laughs> in his recent film efforts, I feel like. Oh yeah, and deservedly so, deservedly so. Um, Bruce Willis has made almost exclusively garbage for the past five to 10 years. Um, but no, you're absolutely right. He's really good in this movie. He does set the tone. And, and in a way, I think because he's the most recognizable star, he's the one people are kind of gravitating to when they see this first and you need him to anchor it. So yeah, this is a really good performance and it's a subdued performance. I mean, I think one of the problems with Willis these days is that he's so subdued that he's barely even there. But but here it's the exact right amount of that. And you can sense this guy is kind of troubled and uh, insecure and has lost his confidence in his abilities and all that kind of stuff. And he goes on an emotional journey here, a really important emotional journey, as much as Cole does, if not more so. Right. I think that framework against Cole's framework really like keeps each scene moving from one to the next. And you do, you mentioned, Josh, you get to that point where as Malcolm Crowe, he says he's the doctor and he, you know, when he finally believes Cole, like, okay, I do believe you that you see dead people and it seems like they're asking for help. So maybe you should help them. Like, and we see that whole sequence with like the retching girl played by Misha Barton. Right. That sequence is, could I wonder, like, could you do the movie without it? Probably, but it's so essential in that it's like boxed in, you know, it's a, it's its own little sequence and it's works so well. I feel like that sequence really elevates this film. Yeah, I had forgotten about the specifics of that sequence. Me, and, me too. And this is what uh, Misha Barton plays, this this little girl ghost that uh, is one of the ghosts that Cole sees and they go to her funeral and uh, she directs him to like this videotape that he hands to her father and they play on the, the, the TV and it proves that her mother had been poisoning her as sort of a Munchausen by proxy right. uh, thing. 
And yeah, I, I didn't remember the details of that. And even when he gave the videotape, I thought, oh, it's just going to be like a nice memory for them that they wanted to have. And I think that's probably a lot of what people were thinking. And so it, in a weird way, has its own little twist. It's like mini twist. Yeah, um, it beats you down too, like as the film continues to beat you down. Yeah, but in a really effective way. And I, I agree, like watching that sequence afterwards, I was like, oh, so good. And it's interesting, I didn't quote this part, but Charles Taylor in Salon hated that and specifically singled that sequence out as one of the worst elements of the movie. <sighs> Charles Taylor. <laughs> I don't even want to talk to you right now. But you know, the other thing about that sequence, Josh, is if you remember the first time you saw it, like, you know, not only is it important to build Cole's character, but it really ups the level of creepiness of the whole thing. Cause like, she's a dead retching girl and like, she's scary in that way, you know? And like, uh, even though she's not trying to be scary and like, we get to the point where she's not the way it's shot and, the tempo of it is very, uh, you know, kind of just creepy and everything. Yeah. And I think especially in the first half of this movie, if you go in, expect if people expected like a horror movie or something, it's not that scary. Um, but as, as we see more of the ghosts and as Cole interacts with them more, there are some at least creepy moments um, to this. And, and Shyamalan builds that like he builds everything else very, very meticulously. And, and I prefer as you know, I'm not a huge horror fan, but I do like these really mind trippy movies that keep you in suspense and mess with you. And, you know, these are the edge of the seat white knucklers, uh, you know, you're holding onto your, your seats. You pay for the whole seat, but you'll only need the edge. Hold on to your butts. You're right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I agree that that sequence is great. And I think there's a lot of, there is a lot of suspense in this movie, especially as it goes on and you start to kind of worry for Cole a bit. Are these ghosts dangerous? Are they going to harm him in some way? I mean, and they have harmed him. We see he, he gets these injuries, the scratches and bruises. Um, and, you know, could something worse than that happen to him? And you definitely feel that sense of danger um, and the sense of, of Crow's sort of helplessness that he wants to help this child. And we haven't mentioned the, the opening of the film where his disturbed former patient, played by Donnie Wahlberg, shows up and accuses him of, of not helping and, and more than that, of, of making things worse for him uh, and then shoots Crow and then shoots himself. So he's got this sort of heavy guilt and this this really strong drive to help Cole in the same way that he was not able to help Donnie Wahlberg yeah, and Vincent. Vincent, there yeah. you go. Vincent Gray. My question about that, though, is, right, we have the sequence where Malcolm Crow is listening to the tape, right, of, of the old Vincent Gray session, and he leaves the room, and then he hears the dead Spanish man saying he needs help, right? But we never know if vincent i guess he never revealed his secret to crow no he didn't but he was disturbed in the same way right i know that but he as opposed to Haley joel osmond's character never said i see dead people maybe he didn't get to that trust level with crow or anything right i think that's one of the things that he realizes in that scene where he's listening to the tape that vincent wasn't able to reveal that whereas he wants to be able to have that connection with cole and you know sort of trust him and have Cole trust Malcolm so that, that he can help Cole in the way that he wasn't able to help Vincent. Yeah. Um, in the first few drafts, you know, uh, Crow was a crime scene photographer. And I think that that wouldn't, I, I get it from like a plot standpoint. Oh, we're at all these like murders or dead people and the kids there to help, I guess maybe or something. But that, I think that would have just felt like kind of forced in. Whereas this, works so naturally into the story. And uh, yeah, what, what about the relationship with Crow and his wife? What do you think about that? Well, I mean, I think that's one of those things that you could say it feels underdeveloped, but the reason that it feels underdeveloped is because it's about the plot twist. So, I mean, I think there's enough there to give you the sense of sort of what what crow claims on the face of it that oh we, she's distant or we're we've lost our connection and it's obvious that crow himself is very troubled uh is feeling all this guilt so you can believe that maybe this would create this barrier between him and his wife um but of course you can't really have them communicate that because they can't talk to each other because he's uh, a ghost 
Um, the one, that's the spoiler. That's the spoiler, yes. <laughs> um, but the, the one thing I thought was sort of like unnecessary about that storyline was the, the hint that she might be sleeping with her coworker. And there's one specific scene where she like gets him a, a gift of a first edition book and then they're kind of like hugging. And I thought, it, I don't care about this. And it's, it's, I think, the only scene of her that doesn't involve Malcolm. And to me, that was one scene where I thought they could have cut this is not necessary. Wait, what, I remember the scene, but are you are you saying Crow didn't see that when that was happening? We didn't see it through his point of view. Right. He's or he's not he's not in it. I mean, I guess he does see it because it ends with the window breaks that he's, yeah. he's been breaking the window. So maybe he's been spying on them. But I guess I just thought the whole idea of like, oh, maybe he's jealous because she's having an affair or, you know, what he thinks is an affair didn't need to be there just the idea that they're distant because he's got this guilt and the stuff that's about his character internally was was enough no i didn't mind that i do think like the idea of time of like the next fall and like man they've never had this chat or anything like that at first i was like how could this be but i guess if you're a ghost then time really is irrelevant at that point in time Time is a flat circle this has come up on multiple episodes of ours i think Yes. Yeah. No, I think you're right. And, and I think I can't, I can't now come up with specifics, but I feel like there's at least a couple examples of Malcolm saying something that gives you the sense that he doesn't understand the passage of time, maybe, um, because he's a ghost. Right. And you had mentioned the, the red doorknob and the basement and it's like, he can't get in, but then we see that he's in the basement and we never see how he gets there. And um, we never see the bookcase blocking it and everything. And and that was the other, like, I'm not going to say it's a cheat because, you know, Haley Joel Osment's character does say, like, they see what they want to see. Um, so he doesn't doesn't realize it at that point in time. But I did feel like maybe if you were looking to nitpick this thing out, that that's the one you could nitpick. Uh, I mean, I, I feel like, again, that was all about the deliberate misdirection. And I didn't mind that. And I think watching this movie, knowing the twist, you can see a lot of that stuff like. I don't think Bruce Willis ever opens or closes a door. Mm. You know, you see him walk up to his house right. and then you see him Into inside the, the house. Right, exactly. Know. And stuff like that that you wouldn't notice if you weren't looking for it is all there. The idea that he's only ever wearing the clothes that he was wearing the night that he died, you know, but it's just this kind of nondescript suit and you figure a guy like that could wear a similar suit every day or something. You know, things that pass you by if you're not looking for them. But Shyamalan is always thinking of those things. Right. And uh, one other point I wanted to mention, uh, James Newton Howard. Excellent. Dave, you want to talk about the music? Like, really, it adds to the whole. Perfect. Yeah. I mean, it adds to that build, like you were saying, like building towards the twist and everything. It just keeps everything dramatic, but also a little creepy, but never really goes into horror territory. But it's it's a great score. Yeah. Yeah. No nomination for him, unfortunately. That's surprising. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think we we said about how great Haley Joel Osment is in this movie and and how much there is for him to do as a kid actor. All these emotions to play, the creepiness, the scariness, but the vulnerability, and he pulls it all off so well. Right, and, you know, I had read that, um, you know, Shyamalan, when he saw him, was like, eh, I don't know, he doesn't have the look. He wanted to have someone put a more creepy look, but Haley Joel Osment was, you know, he emotionally got it. And, you know, when he auditioned, they were like, did you read your part? And he's like, I read it three times last night. He goes, you read your part three times last night? He goes, no, I read the script three times last night. <laughs> you know, so he was really into breaking down this whole thing. And this is what he did really well. And, you know, even Bruce Willis said, like, he was able to cry on cue on every take. And so I think, you know, how about that scene? I, maybe this is the last thing we need to talk about before we rate this thing. Um, with Haley Joel Osment, where he finally reveals to Tony Collette uh, what his secret is. And at first she doesn't believe him. And then he gets her to believe him by revealing this evidence of, you know, conversations with his grandmother, who's Tony Collette's mother, dead mother. Yeah, that scene is great. And is, is very like emotionally powerful. You know, we talk about the creepiness and the plot twist and the mechanics of it, but the emotion here is really strong. And that scene really will kind of bring a tear to your eye, I think, because because of both of them, because of Haley Joel Osment, and that's maybe the best scene for Tony Collette, too, because she's on this sort of emotional journey of like, oh, God, what is wrong with my kid? Now he says he sees ghosts. What is this? To sort of having this like 
visceral, like cathartic reaction to learning that her mother was proud of her and stuff. It's a really well-made scene. And I think the subtext of that, yes, that that is the reason she kind of breaks down. But also now they've broken down these barriers between mother and son and like they can move forward. Right. Yeah. All of that is great. And I think that sort of shows that's one of the reasons that Malcolm can move on, right? Because he's now gotten Cole to a place where he can talk to his mother, where those barriers are broken down. And it's not just about Malcolm understanding that he's dead and letting go of his wife and stuff, but he has to be able to help this other child in the way that he could not help Vincent. Vincent. Right. So all that is really good. Yeah. Right. So should we rate this thing, Josh, out of five dead people? I mean, that seems like the obvious thing to yeah. do. So yeah, go for it. Uh, I'm going to say four dead people. All four right. dead people. Yeah, I'm going to agree. Four, four out of five dead people for me. Four out of five dead people recommend this film. <laughs> um, <laughs> and one dentist. And one dentist. Maybe a dead dentist, you know. Get, get those both in there. But yeah, this was, this was the first time I'd seen it since I saw it in the theater. And like I said, I remembered really liking it, but also being sort of distracted by the twist element. And I just was like all in on it this time. It's so good. Yeah, first time I saw it since the theater too. And I think when you see a movie like this, you almost avoid rewatching it because of the surprise and how it uh, made you feel. And you're wondering if like you can recapture that. And obviously you can't, but like you said, you can still get those other emotions and see the build. And um, this one is just executed really well. Yeah, I think this was a, maybe a more satisfying experience for me watching it this time than the first time. So, uh, Dave, what would you rate this? I'm going with four two guys, and uh, I've seen it a bunch of times, but oh, okay. you know, it's great. And you so you feel like it holds up every time? Yeah, I, I would almost say it kind of dipped a little, like the last time I watched it, and this time it went back up. I oh. just I really loved it this yeah. time. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 an excellent excellent film. So uh, as we've been hinting, Jason, you got a chance to talk to Dick Walsh. Yeah, I talked to Dick Walsh, uh, former chair of AMC Theaters, and he has such a different insight than we have as viewers because he comes from the theater business side of it. So I think you guys are really going to like that interview, and we will get to it right after this. All right, here with Dick Walsh. Uh, Dick, how are you doing today? I'm I'm doing good, waiting for some movies to open that actually do some business. It must have been a uh, and still be a harrowing two years for you, uh, as it is for many people. But but along with the same reasons, just different reasons with the film business and everything. Yeah, you know we're we're trying to show signs of improvement, and as each week <laughs> goes by, it seems like uh, we can't get out of our own way. So. Regal just announced $144 million loss. AMC announced a $344 million loss. So the question everybody has to ask is, are we having any fun yet? Well, speaking of AMC, we are here to talk about The Sixth Sense. And at the time of its release, summer of 99, what was your position with AMC Theaters? Uh, I was I was actually in the operations area and um, doing some things for them on real estate and all of that. And then I uh, had just moved into the film area. Okay. And with this film, did you know anything? Because this was a surprise hit. Did you know about it ahead of time or... Did this just catch you by surprise as well? It caught everybody by surprise, including uh, Disney. Uh, my good friend Chuck Beyond, who was president of distribution, when they would review their summer lineup for the year, they would go over their pictures. And of course, this was going to work, and this was going to work, and this was going to work. And then we're going to end the summer uh, in early August with a picture called The Sixth Sense. And um, we we hope it'll work and uh you know but uh certainly there was no uh proven track record coming in behind this picture so in august you mentioned it was like an august 6th release that back in 99 that was a graveyard right that was that was where you put movies to die exactly it was the last best hope before the next week half of the schools in the country would be uh, back in in operation, and it was 
Yeah, the, it was the dog days of summer for sure. And if you had a major tentpole out there, you're not releasing it on August 6th. You're releasing it on June 6th. And so it all went to show that uh, nobody had expected uh, much out of this particular picture. And a lot of it had to do with the director, writer, uh, M. Night Shyamalan, uh, who was a total unknown. Here's a fun fact for you. The picture opened on his 28th birthday. I didn't know that. I did know. I mean, yeah, I was going to ask you about Shyamalan because he had directed two movies before then, and he was a bit of a script doctor, but he had to fight to kind of keep the movie and make it his way, it sounds like. Well, this was this was obviously uh, after Rocky Balboa, but he had to fight like Sylvester Stallone to get this picture made, to get the backing that he would need. And of all the studios that would release a sci-fi thriller horror flick, would it be Disney? <laughs> right. I mean, it's just an amalgamation of like different pieces coming together because this kind of revamped Bruce Willis, too. He was... He was, you know, he had that boom in the early 90s with Pulp Fiction and everything, but he wasn't really thought of in this genre, I guess, other than maybe 12 Monkeys around this, you know, again, early 90s. So this was a, a turn for him as well. Right. This is this is where he takes a role because he likes he likes it, but doesn't think that it's going to have much to do with uh, his uh, current and or future success. I don't know what he was paid for the picture, but I'm sure it wasn't very much. Yeah, I heard with points he walked away with $60 million, so a good bet for him. Um, I, you were telling me when we were talking about doing this podcast about your first time uh, watching this at a screening with Disney. Uh, please tell us about that story. Well, you know, you're sitting there and you're watching it and you're thinking, okay, it's okay. It's okay. Then you get to about the hour and a half mark and say, where is this going? And then they proceed to drop one of the more significant plot twists in the history of your industry in your lap and you're literally going did i have i did i just see what i thought i saw is that what he's really talking about <laughs> it was it was uh you know quite profound and uh the disney people felt like okay this is going to do some business it's not going to be huge but we're going to be okay and Please, dear God, don't let the word get out. And so the picture opens in its opening week and does $44 million, which in 1999 dollars is like $75 million now. And again, as you said, it was, it was at the tail end of summer. Nobody expected this to gross this late in the year. And the remarkable thing about this is the picture doesn't drop. It drops 10% in week two, 11% in week three, only 20% in week four. And oh, by the way, week five, which is now the Labor Day weekend, it goes up 21%. Are you kidding me? Can you think of another movie that kind of had that trajectory? The only, the only other one that comes to mind is Titanic. Titanic which did not open huge. It lost the weekend. It lost to the bond picture that weekend. And then for the next 18 or 19 weeks would be number one, consistently throwing $20 million each and every week. And then as it got closer and closer to the Academy Awards nominated for so many, uh, it actually uh, went back up again. I mean, we're talking about Black Widow two weeks ago uh, dropped over 70%. And it's Friday, the Friday number dropped 80%. I mean, people, people cannot understand how the level of hold here is remarkable. And here's the thing. Disney was terrified the word would get out, that people would understand and know before they went in 
that what the plot twist was. <laughs> and and obviously these numbers say it didn't get out, that people continue to be surprised. They would leave there, go to a party and say, hey, I just saw the most profound picture I think I've ever seen. You have got to see it. It has an incredible twist, but the word doesn't get out. Now, how does how would that possibly happen in 2021? I was actually going to ask you, how would it even happen in 99? Why do you think people just said, go see the movie? And that's, and that's it. Because, you know, I guess they wanted everyone to still have that visceral experience that they had. But for it not to get out, it's pretty amazing. Yeah, and I, I think that is part of it, that the, the, real, the real film people out there, the people that really enjoy movies, you're having a beer with your best buddy, and you say, I've just seen the, the damnedest picture I think I've ever seen in my life. You've got to go see it. In fact, let's drive to the theater right now. I want to see it again, and I want you to sit there, and I want you to watch this, and I want you to tell me what your reaction is to the picture. And so it was a, a loyalty to not letting the word get out that in today's spoiler alert mentality, if you know something, you feel like you have to tell the world. Right. Do you think something like this could exist today? I, I don't think so. And, you know, there's, there's a couple of reasons uh, why with social media being so prevalent and everything, I think that the word would get out and that would have negatively affected the gross. The second thing is that it was such a phenomenon that I, it's very difficult to put lightning back in the bottle and, and repeat that. If, if it was so easy, uh, you would have seen it done time and time again. M. Knight has tried to come back time and time again. And I don't think, while he's done some fine work, I don't think he ever approached oh, what he accomplished in Sixth Sense again. And he's he's had a terrific career, but you might say that on on his birthday in 1999, he, he may have peaked. I think you're right. And I think you're right about his career, speaking uh, of your Philadelphia friend Rocky there, right? I mean, he right. might not have won any more championships, but he would – he kept going up and down the rankings, and now, you know, after Old came out, I don't know where he is anymore. I mean, he's well, been right with the Apple Show, and who knows? At, at about uh, five years ago at CinemaCon, the industry uh, convention, uh, luck would have it that I would be introducing him to an accept a, an award or something. Almost, I, I think it might have been Lifetime Achievement Award or something. Uh, when exhibition distribution get together, they think of a way where they can show each other the most love. So let's give awards. And so I actually gave him the award. And I think it's, it's, it's nice to see him beginning to branch out. In fact, his next picture is going to take place in Pittsburgh. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I got, I got maybe half the house rolling with me on this one and the other half kind of groaning, but uh, yeah, Mr. Mr. Philadelphia. That's a good line. Uh, you know, it's, a, it's only a matter of time before he gets to Harrisburg after that. Right. Right. So, right, uh, right. so I, one more question for you. Did you did you sneak into any of the AMC theaters to watch the reaction of uh, the patrons when this was coming out? Yeah, um, it's always fun to do that. And um, you would you would have literal guests in the auditorium as people figured out now what the plot twist is. It's kind of funny that even now, I don't feel that I'm released from my obligation to tell people what the actual twist is. I think I think hopefully on our podcast here, 90% of our listeners will understand uh, the plot twist and, and know it, but I don't even want to release it now. I want to keep it fresh for anybody that just, that just uh, might see it uh, next week or something. Yeah, and I, I got to say, having rewatched it this week, it's really well written. And obviously, I'm not going to have the same reaction as not knowing, but I thought it really held up well over time, which is an impressive thing 20, 22 years later. And and my daughter was in a, we were in a, a CPK and she was like eight years old and she said, I see dead people. And 
the two tables over, the people were looking at her like, do I have a demonic child here or something like that? And, uh, you know, so it, it really took the country by storm. It, 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 these are statistics you just can't, you can't make them up. It played for 41 weeks. Yeah, amazing. It went from the summer, the tail end of summer of 1999 to the beginning of summer, 512 of the year 2000. And it did $294 million, which, again, in today's world, is easily over $400 million domestic. And, um, you know, so it's one of those things where you could say and point back and say that probably changed our business in more ways than we could have imagined. So it's uh, it's fun to look back at it, and it just doesn't seem possible that it was 99 to now over 20 years ago. Yeah, and I think this is a good point to leave off at because I really appreciate uh, learning about kind of the business from your point of view and the idea of how this changed it going forward. And right now we're just in franchise mania. I think that's going to be a good place to pick up this conversation in the future. So I really just want to thank you for coming on. And as you did in Cordillera, dropping these knowledge bombs on us. Well, any Jason, anything I can do to help, you just let me know. And I will be there for you. And um, we've known each other two weeks now. And it seems like it's uh, two years. We're all buddies. We're going to watch some Chiefs games. So thank there you. you uh, thank you, Dick. I really appreciate your insight. All right. Thank you. Have a good one. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1999, we're talking about box office number two champ, The Sixth Sense. And thank you, Jason, for that awesome interview with Dick Walsh from AMC. And thanks to him for joining us. Yeah, that's really a really fun get that we got there. And uh, I hope we have Dick back on because he has such uh, history in the film business and coming from that side of, you know, what a theater owner, theater uh, businessman needs. And also he was, uh, um, you know, an, an advisor to the Tribeca Film Festival. I just thought I saw him on this panel and everyone was talking about um, film from like an actor or director standpoint. And I was like, man, this guy's got a theater owner standpoint, not just the theater, AMC theaters, which um, yeesh right now. But, you know, well, so. I, you know, AMC is right. It's doing better in a weird way right now, I think, than other theater chains because it has this stupid meme stock thing going right, for it. Right. And maybe he would <laughs> lean into that right now. But uh, I do I do think Dick uh, offers just some really unique insight. Yeah. And so, I mean, the success of this movie in theaters, as you talked about, the sort of unprecedented, maybe in some ways, and certainly not really repeatable success is a big legacy here just the, the the sensation that this thing became and the way that it permeated pop culture, whether it's people saying, I see dead people or parodying the idea of that. Right. How long did we, we saw that so many times? So. Yeah, we did that. You know, it got to the point where it's like, I mean, a lot of times these catch oh, catchphrases or iconic lines is like Borat or something. You right. Know? Austin Powers, as we talked about last season. And of course, there was a studio executive who's like, hey, let's do a sequel. And it's like, how do you? I'm glad that they didn't do that, Josh. Yeah, right after. Yeah, that would have been a bad idea. But look, the legacy is, yes, this this is an anomaly, an outlier. Wouldn't happen today. Wouldn't even get a theatrical release today, probably. Uh, Maybe it would. And then Haley Joel Osment could sue them for also releasing a day and date on Disney Plus. Who knows? So, (laughs) but um. But Josh, I really think, you know, for us, uh, beyond the film, M. Night Shyamalan is uh, his own mystery to figure out, isn't he? Yeah. And so obviously the success of this movie, you know, shot him right to the top of the A-list and he was able to do whatever he wanted immediately afterwards. And the next movie he made, which was also with Bruce Willis, Unbreakable with Samuel L. Jackson, too. I love that movie. And I remember seeing that. And maybe because the expectations were not the same as with The Sixth Sense, although that movie also has a twist. I liked that one so much more at the time. And now I maybe I don't, but it's a great movie. I liked Unbreakable a lot, and I disagree with you. Uh, I mean, there were, there were super high expectations on it because, you know, it's M. Night Shyamalan and then the new vision from the twisted right. director, right? And I think really the first four 
right? Those, well, the four when, you know, because he had made two before this, but the four with the twist, those two and the happening in the village, right? No, no, the happening was later. It's Unbreakable and then Signs. Signs, that's and what I the meant. Village. And yeah, those, yeah. those were, those four, I think, were when he was at the height of his kind of acclaim and popularity. Even by the time you hit the village, People, are, I think, are getting a little disillusioned with him and with the whole twist thing. I bet if you look back at the village, it works now. You know, I think you're right. Like maybe there was a little fatigue, but there's no way you could just pull off a twist like this and everyone. But like you said, Unbreakable, really another moody piece. Signs was different, but I liked Signs. And I think, you know, look, A Quiet Place is a huge franchise right now. And you don't think that owes something to Signs? Oh, it owes. I mean, A Quiet Place, too, has a specific plot element that's basically ripped off right from Signs. Right, right. Know? So what was the happening? If I apparently uh, Mark Wahlberg. Yeah. yeah, I saw that one. Yeah. Was that good? I don't remember. No, no. I, the happening was... See, I mean, I think this was after The Village. He then went into this, this period where people decided that he sucked. And so, well, he kind of brought that on himself because he made himself the savior of the world and Lady of the yeah, Water. Yeah, and Lady in the Water is really just like unforgivably horrible. One of the worst movies. It ever. really, it really, really <laughs> is, and 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 really indicative of that buying into his own hype and just setting him up himself up as this like literal messiah figure. Right. Right. Um. So right, he made that, and then he made the happening, which to me the happening has like a very creaky idea behind it. And the setup, and there's some really creepy scenes in the beginning, the idea that that sort of nature is causing humanity to kill itself. And these people who are just like walking off buildings mindlessly and stuff is really, really creepy. But I think by that point, he gets into a place where he is, especially like with old, his new movie, where he, he gets these very stilted performances from his actors that seem like on purpose on his part, directing I, them that way. I do remember that Mark Wahlberg just kind of like, delivering lines like this right know? and mark Wahlberg does that anyway but i feel like Shyamalan is really leaning into that for some reason but at the same time after that period of like lady in the water and the happening and then uh, of course he did a couple of these franchisey things or would-be franchises right. with director after, for higher stuff right although he was he was screenwriter on that stuff and and i think had more passion than just a director for hire but i mean he made two horrible movies like uh after earth is just one of the also worst movies. So I, I mean, you know, you want to throw that in there. And then The Last Airbender, which is a beloved franchise and still like super popular on, um, you know, the TV show on Netflix is still super popular. But man, his live action version was just a, a pile of just trash. That was a horrible film. Yeah, both of those films are really, really bad. And not only are they bad, but they're clearly like Shyamalan trying to sort of redirect his career and, oh, I'm going to do these uh, blockbuster special effects franchisee movies. They don't have twists or whatever. And he just fails completely at that. And then he's forced to kind of scale way down. And he made a couple films that I at least think are really good and that were generally well regarded The Visit and Split. And I don't know if you've seen those, Jason. No, I haven't. I think I got like, uh, not that I wouldn't see those, but like I definitely tapped out after, after Earth and Last Airbender. And um, but, you know, like you said, he's got those and then um, and then the TV show, The Servant, right, is also. Yeah, Ser popular. Servant that he's a producer on and he's directed some episodes. Uh, he also worked in TV on a show called Wayward Pines that I think he directed some episodes for, which was like talk about twists. That show was just like insanity was piled on insanity. No, no, I didn't no. think so, but it had a following. I think it only went for two seasons. Yeah. What was oh, the visit was that like low budget horror one. And right. And then, you know, split led into glass, which is like his own, you know, MC universe, right. And MCU, you know, type thing. So he's just like, it'll be, and now old, which you guys both saw, right? Yeah. yeah. And Dave, I think kind of liked it. I liked it, but it's very ridiculous. It's really silly. And it's not the sixth sense or unbreakable or, you know, any of these good movies. Right. It's yeah. not a good, it's not movie, good right. but Dave liked it. Yeah. Um, which uh, goes back to his use of Malcolm and Marie, which I don't want to talk about. Which you're never going to let go of. No, never. it's a horrible never. film and shame on you, Dave. Uh, but no, I think old is... I like the happening. It has a cool, creepy premise and mm -hmm. some like eerie, like kind of executions of that premise. But it's full of this just like horribly stilted writing and wooden performances. And you can blame like Mark Wahlberg in the happening and say, oh, he maybe he was miscast or he can't do that kind of role. But 
old is full of good actors who are all terrible in it. Mm. And then you who's know, the most terrible? God, I don't know who's the most terrible in that in that movie, Dave. I mean, some might say Alex Wolf uh, playing a you know guy who was just a kid a few minutes ago. That's like a really big performance, I think. Yeah, yeah, he he is. But even like like Gael Garcia Bernal sure. and Vicky Cripps, who are the main character, the parent characters, both really good actors, and they're just dreadful. It's weird because we literally just talked about how good all these performances yeah. are, and you know Haley Joel Osment, who I last saw on Silicon Valley, like. Um, he definitely got stuck playing like serious boy, you know, and yeah, like, right. AI and pay it forward and this and that. But um, he was talent. He was definitely a talent and Shyamalan got the best out of him. Right. Well, I think he kind of was was stuck after this movie because he became this like weird child superstar. And so he gets cast in these movies where, right, you like you said, he plays serious boy or right. whatever. Well, and- not just a child superstar, child um, adult, like he's the opposite of a man child, right? He's, <laughs> he's like a, a child, child man. man. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Yeah, I mean, pay it forward is just so bad for so many reasons. I mean, AI is not good either, dude. Don't let, don't just let them off the. I mean, I, I like seen, AI. Yeah, AI has like a real like serious critical acclaim at this point. I haven't seen it in a long time, and he was also like, I know Jason. I remember whatever year this was. We you had mentioned this as a movie for us to cover, Secondhand Lions. People love secondhand lions, man. I, I do. I think that was either 2003 or 2000. It must have been 2003 because he couldn't have been too much older than this. But, you know, he uh, goes to the farm with his uncles and it's like Michael Caine and Robert Duvall. That is a true cult classic. So, I mean, even in that period of time, he was still doing some interesting stuff and he took a little time off. He's done a lot of voice acting and animation and stuff. And now he seems, you know, as opposed to a lot of these child actors, he seems like he's really well adjusted. Exactly. That was the word I was going to use and he's happy. And uh, he was fun on Silicon Valley and I don't know what else he's doing, but you know, more power to him. Yeah. He does a lot of weird comedy stuff. He's worked with Kevin Smith. Uh, he was in Tusk and in Yoga Hosers. Wow. Yoga Hosers. Another yeah. one on the worst of list. But, but you know, he's obviously into doing this goofy, weird stuff. He was in both of those weird Will Ferrell produced like, soap opera parodies the spoils of babylon and the spoils before dying which are that talk about weird stuff but you know he can just do whatever and i think he's having fun with it and good for him yeah that's awesome tony collette one of the best we know that yeah she's amazing she's been in a million things and uh disappointingly never again nominated for an oscar after this movie for I, some reason i mean but you know she was she's probably won a bunch of other awards and you know, the, the one that we never mention is Olivia Williams anymore, who played uh, Malcolm Crowe's wife. I like Olivia Williams a lot. And she she's also works extensively. I liked her a lot on Dollhouse, the Joss Whedon show that she was one of the main stars of. And uh, I think was she she was was she on The Crown recently or maybe is it going to be on The Crown? I think, she you know, she works steadily. So, well, I know we will be talking about her later this season. So there There, you go. We can get more. I can look up the proper information about her. But (laughs) why um, don't you do that? You're right about Tony Collette did win an Emmy for United States of Terra, which was a huge showcase for her as the woman with multiple personalities. Uh, Everyone wanted her to win an Oscar for Hereditary, but she wasn't even nominated for that. Uh, Not everyone then. Uh, yeah, no, but so. it was a huge campaign. Did you see that, Jason? I feel like that's the kind of thing you would not see. I didn't see it. Yeah, no. that'll, that'll always be like the big one for me, the one that got away. Right. She's amazing in that movie. I also really liked her in uh, Unbelievable at Netflix miniseries from a couple years ago yeah. about a, a rape investigation. She plays a cop and she's really good in mm. that. Do you have any other favorites of hers? Not off the top of my head. I have fair. to look it up. So. Uh, should we talk some shit about Bruce Willis again for a minute? Uh, you can. I think this is like a recurring theme as like Rob Reiner, uh, you know, are, but I, look, I want, I want him to do well again. Cause you know, he's great in here and I love, um, Die Hard. It's the best Christmas movie ever. Die Hard is great. Later Die Hard movies, less, less so. Yeah. I mean, as, as we've said, I think he, for whatever reason, and I don't know if he's desperate for money or what it is, but he's in so many of these terrible straight to VOD movies um, he is like Nicolas Cage, but he hasn't cracked the code that Nicolas Cage has. Cause like Dave and I recently talked about on our episode of piecing it together about pig, Nicolas Cage might take big swings, but he's always trying. And once in a while, those big swings are home runs. Right. And, uh, Bruce Willis, not so much. No, no. I mean, I think, yeah, the key, two key differences, I think there, because Nicolas Cage also is in all of these like low budget B movies. 
One is like you said, Nicolas Cage is always trying. No matter how terrible the movie is, he is always giving his best effort to the performance and finding some approach to it that's unique. Um, and he's usually like the actual star of those movies. Whereas Willis will show up as like the person on the poster and then he's in the movie for like five minutes. And I just recently reviewed a movie that he was, you know, high build in called Midnight in the Switchgrass, which he's barely in. And literally halfway through the movie, his character is like, I can't take this anymore. I'm going home. He literally <laughs> just goes home in the middle of the movie. All right. Well, I think that's all you need to say about that. I will say About a Boy is my other favorite Tony Collette uh, performance. Oh, yeah, and sure. I love that film. Yeah. So I don't really, I have one other fun fact about this. Since, Ooh, fun fact. As you know, I used to work at Blockbuster Video. Uh, this was the top selling DVD of 2000, 2.5 million. And they say it is the top video rental of all time in, in 2000 alone, 80 million rentals. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it definitely was out at like the right moment for that kind of success. Fun facts. Very fun. So that is The Sixth Sense, and that is this episode of Awesome Movie Year. You can check us out on social media. You can. I'm still Jason Harris Comedy on Facebook and Instagram. But guess what, Josh? I now have 5,000 friends on Facebook. Uh-oh. Talk about a twist. So I think you have to go to J. Harris Comedy on Facebook, uh, and please follow me there, and on Twitter at J. Harris Comedy. My website, Go for Jason, is seen by Haley Joel Osment's character. He sees dead websites. <laughs> yeah. um, so I don't know if that's worth anything. We're at awesomemovieyear.com, Awesome Movie Year on Facebook and Instagram, Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter. My website might be about to be seen by Haley Joel Osment, <laughs> joshbellhateseverything.com. I'm at Josh Bell Hates Everything on Facebook and at Signal Bleed on Twitter. And you can listen to our producer, David Rosen's awesome podcast, Piecing It Together. Check out Piecing It Together wherever you listen to podcasts and follow us on social media at PiecingPod. And don't forget about our Produced by David Rosen Patreon, where you guys just released a new bonus episode on the James Bond movie, You Only Live Twice. Uh, from our 1967 season. Don't forget, I have another podcast called Food and Loathing, all about the Las Vegas food scene. Yeah, listen to Food and Loathing. And uh, is there? there's an old episode of, not an old episode, but an episode about the movie old of Piecing It Together that, that people can check out. That is coming up, yep. All right. So uh, speaking of coming up, Jason, what's in our next episode? We're, we're continuing on with uh, another major figure who really broke through in 1999. It's our first feature episode. It's The Virgin Suicides, Sofia Coppola. So tune in next time for The Virgin Suicides. And thanks for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Thank you for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Make sure to follow Awesome Movie Year on Facebook, at Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter, and at Awesome Movie Year on Instagram. And if you like the show, review us and rate us with five stars on Apple Podcasts. An All Points West production, produced by David Rosen in Las Vegas.